everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Armita Fear. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Rockus. In this episode, I speak with fintech pioneer, Diego Rojas. He has been at the cutting edge of fintech across the globe. Diego's from Argentina and started coding when he was eight years old. He joined Lending Club in its very early days in 2011, and then moved to Dianrong, another pioneer in fintech in China. He founded a fintech consulting firm called Leap, based in Singapore in 2017, before founding open finance company Financier in 2020. This episode was recorded towards the end of 2022 when Diego was CEO of Financier, so we spent some time talking about Financier's business. Today, however, Diego is working on some exciting new fintech projects, which we'll hopefully hear more about in the coming weeks. In the meantime, I hope you'll enjoy this episode of The Green Room. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform. And we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, Uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Diego, super excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to the green room. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Anvita. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. So Diego, let's start by talking about you. Um, We're in Singapore right now. Uh, We actually met a few weeks ago at a fintech happy hour here in Boat Key. uh, And I was fascinated by your story. Can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about your background growing up in Argentina and how you got into computer science and uh, coding and everything from a very young age? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was a lovely event after, you know, some time without meeting people, you know, with the pandemic and all that. So great meeting you and plenty of fintech folks over there. So a bit about my background. Yes, I'm a software engineer. I've been working in fintech for quite some time, but taking a step back, I started coding, you know, very early in, in my life when I was eight years old. And I was just genuinely curious about technology, science, and I found maybe, you know, programming the best discipline to actually explore this sort of universe in terms of, you know, what was possible through technology and, and, and programming. And I, I grew up just you know, coding and through my teenager, teenager years in Argentina, I continued to develop stuff, sometimes, you know, little projects, nothing really, wow, like amazing, but I kept learning, learning new programming languages and, and just, you know, sort of training myself even before getting into college. And I, at some point I was, you know, the usual IT guy that you will find in, in, in any sort of office, you know, fixing computers, fixing the network and stuff like that. I got, you know, some jobs early in my, in my life, you know, doing those things and always just interacting with machines, programming and building stuff. Um, but that got me into computer science and software engineering during my college time. But even, even though I was studying and, and, you know, doing some interesting stuff in college, I also began to work in, in serious stuff at that time. Um, and I found just at some point more exciting. The, the professional side of things, you know, looking only at the, at the academic side of things. And, and, and that got, after some time, that got me a job into, into lending club and, you know, software development and, and fintech. And that's how my fintech career began in a way with lending club. But I think just part of me is always, you know, 
I'm always generally curious about things. And, and I think in the past, since very early in my, in my life, I just wanted to build things. And I think programming was the best way and the best expression of all that. Yeah. Amazing, Diego. I, I think you, you said you started coding at eight years old. I'm, I'm trying to think what I was doing at eight years old. I think I was like probably like playing out in the dirt or something. Well, me too, I guess. <laughs> but, 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 but I found some time to, you know, to, I had this little computer that you could plug to the TV and then I use, and that thing, you know, you could actually play games like Mario and, you know, all these usual things. But there was this module where you can program in basic and, and I, I got a manual. And I began to follow the steps. So I, I, I got familiar with, you know, the, the different programming sort of techniques and, you know, the keywords and the syntax and the structures and variables and you know, all the basics. So by eight, nine years old, I, I covered the basics of programming and, and I kept building, you know, following different tutorials and things that I could find in libraries or maybe some, you know, relatives and, and people just provide me with some magazines. And, you know, continue just building little things. But for me back then, you know, those things were amazing. Amazing. And it sounds like the amount of intellectual curiosity it takes as an eight-year-old and then going throughout your 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 youth years and then taking you throughout your career is like is very evident, uh, Diego. So let's let's kind of continue with that story. You I guess you moved to the US at some point and joined uh Orbit. Uh, I think that was your was it your first job out of college. Um, and then quickly made the jump to Lending Club back in like 2011. Tell us a little bit about, about that experience, first joining Orbitz. And I think that was um, at a time, I think we were all using Orbitz. Uh, it was a very popular travel uh, travel platform. And then making the jump to Lending Club in a time when fintech didn't really even exist. I don't even think the term fintech was coined at that point. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience and that jump. Oh, that's very interesting because I think... Oftentimes I reflect and look back into, you know, the actual transition towards uh, fintech, but yeah, I don't pay too much attention or I don't discuss a lot about the early days when I was just working for Orbitz. Now it's part of Expedia. Uh, and I think back then, as I mentioned, you know, I used to be IT guy doing this kind of things, you know, fixing windows and, and <laughs> um, networks and stuff. But at some point, uh, there was this need in a local company in Argentina, you know, recruiting engineers to to really help with a big client and that client got Sorbit. And um, and then I I didn't think twice about it because there the, there was a real possibility there to just travel to get some training and to just collaborate with the Orbit team in the US. So I I really quickly joined into this. I took part of all this and then I spent some time in, in Chicago in the US. But for me that experience was eye opening because I got firsthand really to interact with systems at the scale. And and you're right, at that time, everyone in the US was using Orbitz. There were also many systems in Europe, eBookers, and, you know, I think we were, we were managing about 50 different sites and all of them were massive. And and my responsibilities over there were, you know, actually dealing with production and managing uh, quality and managing automation and making sure that all the systems were running properly at, at, at scale and interacting with dozens of very experienced, experienced engineers in, in the US and across the world. And that really taught me about really managing the systems at scale and looking at, you know, quality, but also looking at the impact of all these in the daily life of consumers. I look at I, I reflect now, and, and even back then, I, I started to think, wow, how convenient it is today to actually book a trip through all this, through these platforms, right? And, and I was proud of being part of that team, building those platforms and making sure that everything, everything was running smoothly, right? So I think, I think at some point I realized that, well, through the technology, programming and building systems, you can really make a positive impact on the world, and you can actually help people to little bit of lives, whether it's more convenient, cheaper, and, and so on. And and I think when I consider, you know, taking a leap of faith and joining Lending Club in the early days, I kind of kind of extended that sort of line of thought, thinking, okay, travel is great. E-commerce also back then was a, a big deal. But how about financial services? Um, and even, you know, during those days, I was thinking, okay, I think financial services and financial products at the end of the day can really make a big positive impact on people's lives. 
beyond the convenience of travel, the convenience of e-commerce, and you know all the great experiences that we find today online, I think financial services can really transform people's lives, transform, transform communities and, and countries. And and at the same time, when I was joining Lending Club, it was like you like you mentioned, Andrea, the early days of the company. So I got the chance to interact firsthand with the founders. And I, I, I also think that, well, a couple of them are kind of my mentors in this fintech journey. And, and I got a chance to, to, to work on them hand in hand, like sitting together and, you know, building stuff together. And I, I was amazed by their, their grit and I got totally inspired by them. And they actually sparked this sort of inspiration towards, you know, just keep doing fintech, <laughs> you know, and, and since then I, I didn't stop. Amazing. Diego, I have two questions for you. One, the one is the easy one, which is how on earth did you get connected to the founders of Lending Club? It sounds like there was some happenstance going on there um, or some <laughs> serendipity. I don't know, but I, I want to know how you ended up meeting the founders of Lending Club. And then you also said, you know, something really interesting, which is about working with these big systems. You can transform people's lives. You can um, transform how people experience things. I wanted to understand, like, where does that come from? Um, why is that something that that you wanted to do at, at Orbitz um, that you saw an opportunity for and then saw it as an even bigger opportunity in fintech? Mm, okay, great. First question, um, how did I get connected to the, the founders? Well, it turns out that when they started the company, a uh, couple of years before I joined, they actually interacted with some engineers in Argentina. And they found that, well, Engineers in Argentina, they have great potential, um, particularly from the college I, I was studying and, you know, the, the city where I was living, uh, that city is called Tandil in the province of Buenos Aires. It's famous in Latin America and in general. Uh, Globan, a publicly set company, actually was born in that city. And I think there is great talent over there. And I think the founders, uh, when in the early days, when they were looking to, you know, get some extra help in engineers and other things, they actually found great talent in, in the country and in that particular city. And then when they were seeking expansion and growth, they were also looking for more people. And that's how actually I got connected and they found me. So that that's that's how that happened. I think you mentioned now um the impact of you know systems of the scale and, and how that translates into perhaps what we are doing today, right? I think, you know, I, I come from Latin America. Uh, a market that is somehow relatable to Southeast Asia. I think I saw many issues for my, my, you know, youth and my kid days. And I guess over the years over, over there in Latin America, I saw many issues, many problems and, and many systemic issues that are still are, are part of the, the region. Um, and I, I did also experience a lot of frustration when you have to deal with institutions, when you have to deal with whether it's government institutions or different sort of private services and so on, I think there is a lot of room for improvement in how individuals and businesses interact in Latin America. That was my first, you know, perception. And when I started working for, for Orbitz and looking at how infrastructure and system can really automate many of these processes and can really make life convenient, I, I, I just really wanted to be part of this and I really wanted to continue building technology and I really want to, to be in places where I personally could make an impact and where in a way, uh, I could just bring something of value to, to, to the country or to the region. And I think I experienced the frustration of dealing with all these broken systems back then. And, and that's a, that, that inspired me in a way to, um, okay, let's find a way to fix at least a small portion of it to make the life of consumers and individuals easier. So that's perhaps where I'm coming from. And, and I think, yes, yeah, Southeast Asia and Latin perhaps are comparable, but since I jumped, I came to this side of the world and I decided to remain on this side of the world and I work with many people here in the region. I just found that, okay, there are many opportunities here to actually build a long-lasting platform and and something that can really improve people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about that jump to this side of the world. Actually, so I'm not sure if it was with Lending Club or after Lending Club that you moved to China and joined Dianrong, um, another pioneer in fintech. 
but yeah, this time in Asia. Again, how did you decide to make that move? And I guess, what what have you taken from the experiences, those early pioneers, fin, uh, Lending Club and um, Dianrong that are now, you know, kind of guiding you, steering you as you continue on your journey in fintech? Mm, and yes, this happens, this happened after Lending Club. And long story short, well, one of the founders of Lending Club wanted to start the same business in China. And at that time, um, you know, China wasn't perhaps a superpower that we see today in terms of technology. There were still many things happening and transitioning towards what it is today. So I think when this was proposed to me back then, I was in Argentina. I was, of course, working with Lending Club and uh, remote, uh, sometimes remote, sometimes, you know, in the US, but I was you know, presented with this opportunity. And again, I didn't think twice about it. <laughs> sure, I was younger also, more adventurous perhaps. And 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 I thought, well, this is going to be fun. And and of course, I continue my journey in FinTech with one of my mentors, one of the founders of Lending Club and founder of Dan Rong. And, and yeah, we have to, you know, move to China and build things from scratch. And of course, we really leverage a lot in, in the learnings of, of Lending Club and how we build the platform and, and the systems and so on. But the market is completely different, was completely different. And, you know, as soon as we actually put the platform out there, we had 6,000 competitors and, and you know, there was fraud and there were plenty of issues that, you know, we didn't face back in the US and you don't face in other markets. And again, we're talking about China and, and the technology seen in China very different from what it is today. Um, we actually have to do a lot of um, sort of trainings and, and, you know, a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to, to, you know, building the platform, building the teams and raising awareness also about what we were doing. But the experience was also life-changing again to me in, in a sense, because again, this opened my eyes to the possibilities of technology at a scale again, but a scale in China, which was even larger than what I was doing before. And, and then in the Enron, I was in charge of the systems, you know, the, the, the cloud infrastructure, the servers and APIs and, you know, all these. And I got to see how things function and scale again. And, and, and I think that experience really helped me to understand not only how all these things have to be built, to be resilient, to be secured and, and, and scalable, but, but also to see how other countries will go through the same digital transformation processes as China did back then. And then when I came to the region here in Southeast Asia, I kind of start, I began to practice a bit what I have learned in China, what I actually acquired in the US. And, you know, I kept compounding and adding to, to my experience in FinTech. And, and these days, you know, um, really applying all those learnings to the context of the markets where we operate in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I think being in China at that time must have also been really fascinating. There was a lot of fintech stuff going on, including, as you said, a lot of fraud, a lot of government regulation. Um, well, maybe the government regulation came later, but um, mm -hmm. must have been a fascinating experience. But then you moved to actually to Singapore, I think, right after that, which is also and Singapore being like a hub for the rest of Southeast Asia. Those are quite different from China. There are many, many things that are similar, perhaps culturally, but from a regulatory perspective, from a you know distribution perspective, things are very different in Southeast Asia. So what made you want to move to Singapore? And then I think you started a company. This is your first entrepreneurial endeavor in at least in the infrastructure fintech space called Leap in 2017. Tell us a little bit about that. Why, why Singapore? And then like, what was Leap all about? Mm, absolutely. So... When I, uh, after almost five years in China, I, I, I kind of, you know, I was looking what's next. To be honest, uh, also, I, I, I worked really hard back then in China uh, and, and then that took its toll. And then I also took a little break in between and I began to, to do some projects remotely and doing the digital nomad thing back then, you know, a while ago. But, but, I got a chance to to go and work in Silicon Valley again, you know, with all the fintech uh, unicorns today. Some some people in my network kind of reach out, and you know, I got a chance to do that. But but someone called me here in Singapore to to become CTO of a fintech startup. So I decided to to come to. to I was around in the region, but I, I really wanted to continue in fintech, but I wasn't sure where to start. 
And then, yeah, I got a call and he joined a small startup here doing invoice financing, lending, you know, building some products. But I quickly realized that, well, the potential of Southeast Asia is, is huge. And actually, uh, you pointed out Singapore is, is different, definitely. Singapore as, as a market, perhaps it's not huge. We understand that. But there are many progressive uh, developments over here. Well, this, you know, from, from MS or, you know, the, the fintech scene and the tech scene here in Singapore is quite vibrant. And I decided to remain here. I decided to you know, continue expanding my network and, and helping other founders to build their products, always in fintech, whether it was credit scoring, lending products, payments, and so on. And, and I couldn't work with all of them. Like I couldn't join any particular company. So I decided to start a firm, sort of consultant firm. And that was Lip, Lip Fintech. And then through the firm, I was able to become a CTO for all these firms at the same time while delivering with my own team and also helping them to build their own teams and products and scale their products. So that's that's what I did for quite some time because, again, I was kind of leveraging my experience back in China, in the US, and also getting more and more familiar with the local landscape and context. And, and that really helped me also to see through, you know, these businesses or entrepreneurs' eyes, okay, what was missing in the region at some point? What was very difficult to build and to get? And and I really felt those pain points. And in a way, all that paved the way to start Financial, really looking into how we can build a platform that can really help all these companies to build better financial services or better financial products for consumers across the region. Got it, got it. You um used what you learned as a consultant and took the leap to start Financier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your pity laugh. Um, no, that was, that was a nice one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So, okay. Yeah. So it sounds like starting Financier was really because you identified a huge gap in the market and it was, you know, a thoughtful analysis because you, you'd actually been, you know, working so closely with so many fintechs to actually understand what are the pain points. And, uh, I definitely agree with you that you know the open infrastructure uh, in terms of financial services across the region is definitely a big pain point. So I guess let's actually now, Diego, talk a little bit more about Financier. Tell us what Financier does, what problem... I mean, you talked a little bit about the problem it's solving, but maybe let's be more specific um, and how. Yeah. Absolutely. So we can use a bit of jargon and say that Financier is a B2B open finance platform. But then we have to unpack all that. Yes, please. Um, and I think there are multiple ways to look at it. We definitely partner with companies, um, whether it's a bank or whether it's any other sort of financial institution or anyone who gathers, process, and hosts data from individuals. And we help them to actually expose this data in a compliant manner. And we help them to monetize the state in a compliant manner. On, on, on the demand side, we work with lending companies, banks, or any financial institution or fintech that is looking to actually leverage uh, some of this data in a way that they can reduce cost of acquisition and increase attention. And with all this, they can actually build better financial services for their own clients or individuals. I think something interesting in the business model is really working with the supply and demand and and really addressing their pain points addressing their concerns and at the end of the day just enabling them to interact with each other in a in an efficient manner in a cost efficient manner so while we are an intermediary here we are actually an enabler and our mission here is just to unlock financial freedom across southeast asia and again there's a bit of jargon there so what does it mean well for consumers at the end of the day what it means is just giving back control over the data and giving them choice or a way for them to express and leverage that data to access better financial services and financial services that are going to lead to better lives. So that's in a nutshell what we do, but it's not the only thing that we do. And there are more things that we are looking to do here, but there is also a, a big element here of, or a big, I would say an important item that we have to mentioned that is timing because I think financial infrastructure is a big issue globally. Maybe you can talk about you know regulation and multiple initiatives that are going on across the world. But 
I think some years ago, and when I was working in Leap and I was building some stuff for for clients and partners and other, you know, fintech companies, I think back then perhaps the concept of open banking, open finance, open data wasn't really a thing that people would talk about. And, and back then, perhaps in the UK and, and Europe, yes, they were making the first moves into open banking. But here in the region, still, you know, nobody was talking about it. Uh, and I think today, well, you know, we started financial by the end of 2020. And I think in, in the past uh, couple of years, um, what we see is actually uh, more awareness, not only from regulators, but really in the market, banks, financial institutions, and to a certain extent, the general public really understanding the implications of this. And lately, institutions understanding the benefits of it because this increases competition and at the end of the day, allow financial institutions to, to build better and more relatable financial services and, you know, to perhaps approach a new segment in the market and perhaps, you know, to build uh, a new app, a new product that will help them to retain consumers, to increase the UM, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a bit of what we do and perhaps why we're doing it now. But another important element is, I think I, I did touch a bit on that, is regulation. You know, we are present in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and, you know, continue to expand across the region. But we see multiple initiatives um, from the central banks really pushing this agenda forward. And what is in interesting and important to, to remark here is that they're also seeking feedback and advice and support from the private sector. And, and we are playing our part. Yeah, Diego, you mentioned so many things there that I actually want to unpack. Um, and we got from the micro of Finantir all the way to the, the ecosystem and all of the players in the ecosystem, all of whom I want to talk about. Let's maybe park that for a little bit and talk, go back to Finantir and how Finantir actually... At the beginning, you talked about kind of like end consumers and how they can access their data and share their data. But who are the other stakeholders that you have to engage with? Are those, and who is your customer at the end of the day? Um, and then I guess from that question, how do you actually make money? Very important question here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are a B2B platform, right? So our clients are businesses, essentially lending companies, banks, digital banks, e-commerce, key economy platforms, pretty much anyone or any platform out there that needs uh data about consumers to make better informed decisions. So if a lending company is looking to underwrite a potential borrower, they need to understand this borrower better. And we provide the lending company with access, consented access to multiple data sets that belong to the borrower. And there is also uh, an element of intelligence and analytics, and there is, uh, you know, machine learning and AI, there are things that we built upon the data. It's not only raw data that you get from a consumer. We process the data and we crunch the numbers to present that in a useful way to our clients, again, lending companies. But there is an interface that faces consumers because consumers at the end of the day, they have to consent and get permission over you know, the data, whether it's financial data or non-financial data. And we work closely with our data partners, our clients, and we present this to consumers to make sure that you know, we're also respecting their privacy. So that's how it works. How we make money, essentially our clients pay for access to this data. And then we distribute this revenue among all the data partners that are participants in this transaction, data transaction. Consumers at the end of the day, they get access to better financial services or they get access to a better deal because our clients are able to understand them better. So that's in their interest and that's their benefit. But as we continue growing the platform and you know keep expanding Financier, there are also some experiences that we are building towards consumers, and that goes around data portability and you know stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, that's that's for another session in the podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. It sounds like there's some exciting things in the pipeline. So I, I okay. So it sounds like the stakeholders are the consumers who have the data, although that data actually probably comes from other sources, things like data yeah. Right. So what what are, what are some of the data partners? Uh, banking partners, telcos, payment gateways, um, utility payments, 
government databases through different partnerships. And, and basically, some of our clients are actually plugging in some data and they become data suppliers as well. So there is a lot of data exchange. Uh, and that's actually why it's open finance and the movement is going towards open data. It's not only restricted to financial data. There is a lot of non-financial data that is important today for financial institutions and for any digital platforms out there, especially in a region where we have still 60, 60% of our population and banco underserved. So that's why our model is, is really broad sorry, and inclusive not only looking at financial data coming from banks. Got it. And I can already imagine with all of this data, it's, you know, we're in a market, we both spent time in the US, right? Where there's a very well-established credit scoring system, but in a market uh, which is based on um, well-established types of data that, you know, banks have to provide. But, you know, in this region, that kind of data is not well-established, that those credit scoring systems are not established. And so being the aggregator of that data becomes a really important part of the um, of the value chain. So Diego, I think you, I, I don't know if I'm a, if this is too much um, from the pipeline, but it sounds like there are some implications for things like credit scoring, things like KYC that you can actually do with that data. Is that right? Or uh, is that still a secret? <laughs> I don't know. It's not a secret. These are some of the products that I, we actually commercialize today. Okay. Uh, we actually have a license from the Financial Service Authority in Indonesia, and you know we are working closely with other regulators across the region. But you're right, uh, and there are multiple experiences and products that we built on top of the data aggregation. And we have a suite of, of sort of open finance products, whether it's account aggregation, EKYC, and credit scoring. And in our in our perspective, and based on our experience, there is no one size fits all sort of product here in the market. I think the level of sophistication of our clients and partners really varies across the board. Uh, some really need some form of credit scoring. Some might need EKYC features. Some might need, you know, profiles and account navigation products. That's why we build a full suite of products. And, and we, what we find oftentimes is that client will demand maybe more than one product, but that's the nature of the market and how sophisticated it is today. There are many fintech companies that are more fin than tech. So we actually have to cater for them as well. Yeah. And that's why we have this broad offering. And we also have a broad offering when it comes to the data sets and data partners. Got it. Makes sense, Diego. Um, can I also ask you, you mentioned that you're active right now in Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, and I believe you started with Indonesia. So can you tell us why you decided to start in Indonesia as opposed to another market, maybe even Singapore and Southeast Asia, and maybe which markets you think are the most exciting? Absolutely. I think Southeast Asia as a whole is exciting, <laughs> just to begin with. But um, Indonesia represents almost 50% of, of the market. And I think maybe removing Singapore from the equation, it's Indonesia is taking the lead when it comes to different initiatives in terms of financial services and and and, and different initiatives from under Bank Indonesia or the Financial Service Authority or JK. And also we see uh, many startups and many financial services and, and many financial products being built uh, for different experiences and different regions or different segments in the market. And I think for us, it really made a lot of sense just to start with Indonesia, really, you know, going after a a large enough market to to bring this model and to execute. Singapore is always a, a very progressive and attractive market in the sense that many are always looking at what Singapore does in general uh, as an inspiration. And even ourselves, you know, as a company, we also consider Singaporean government sort of a, an inspiration in terms of, you know, how they are building some infrastructure and, and, and legislation around that. But I think other exciting markets are, of course, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. I think Southeast Asia as a whole is, is, is very exciting because the pain points and the problems are kind of similar, but each market, each country has a different reality. And I think it's important for us to, to continue this journey and being also hyper-local. That's why also we have a team in Indonesia. The majority of our colleagues are in Indonesia. We have also a team in the Philippines and we continue to build our team country by country and executing the playbook in a similar manner. But at the same time, we, we work with local partners and, and regulators to, to push this agenda forward, really timing how we roll out our products, how we roll out our expansion. Uh, it's not like a, a crazy, let's go Southeast Asia. Well, no, no, there, there is context to this and I think um, it's important to understand the local landscape and be hyper-local. Beyond that, really working with 
the right operators, the right partners, and addressing the pain points, which are different from, you know, our open finance stack is, like I mentioned, a congregation credit scoring in KYC and some other products. But the priority or the demand for some of them is different according to the country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it sounds like, um, Diego, that, yeah, you've, you've selected the markets you're operating, you're operating in, uh, with a clear, um, analytical focus. Like you've said, okay, Indonesia is a huge market. We'll start there. But then also, um, you know, the sky's the limit. You can go all across Southeast Asia with, with what you've built in, in Indonesia. I think it might be a good time to zoom out a little bit since you've already talked on about some of these like kind of broad, um, open finance themes, things like regulation and, uh, you know, the nuances between different markets. Maybe let's talk about um, regulation first, mm-hmm. right? You, you mentioned some of the regulators, some are uh, much more forward-looking, some are perhaps less forward-looking, but what is really the role of regulators in open finance? No, this is a big topic. Maybe we need <laughs> to have an episode two for this. <laughs> but, but, you know, just to take a step back, I think, you know, for all of us here in Financia, you know, we all come with you know, a fintech background, um, you know, from different sort of segments and sectors, but really with experience in financial services. And when we started the company, regulation and compliance was, you know, the first thing that we thought about. Like, okay, how are we going to do this? And what's the role that we're going to play? And how we can time also the different developments across the region in this regard and, and how we can, you know, play our role and, and support all this and push this agenda forward. So that was from day one, really uh, an emphasis of focusing in compliance and regulation. And uh, in Indonesia, actually, there is this initiative called BIFAS that is going to revolutionize how payments are, are made in the country, but also that has many building blocks around open banking, open APIs, and, 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 you know, things that are happening today. And we're glad that, you know, we are also very close to the actual implementation of all this. We also see that there is the Open Finance uh, Overseeing Committee in the Philippines, and Philippines talks about open finance explicitly. We also see that Thailand talks about open data. We also see other countries kind of, or regulators, looking at each other and exchanging notes learning a lot from the experience of PSD2 in the UK and in Europe, looking at what's, hap- what's happening in, in Latin America with Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, with very strong a very strong stance on this and really with some regulation in place in terms of open banking and open finance. And what, what is interesting to see is that these days regulators are really seeking support and feedback, and they are in this collaborative approach with the private sector. They are really trying to understand this better because this is a new thing in general, but they do understand. And when I say they, I mean regulators and governments, they do understand that uh, open finance and open data and these initiatives in general, and they can become a catalyst for financial inclusion. And, and financial inclusion ranks very highly in government's agenda across the region. And, and this is something that uh, I mean, the role that they're playing is, okay, let's understand what are the building blocks of this. Let's understand what are the implications in terms of data privacy, security, and the impact of all this. But at the same time, they're also bringing together the private sector to really help to build at least the foundations uh, of how this is going to look like across the region. And many are learning from each other. They are also meeting often. And, you know, there are many white papers and, and drafts and things that are going on there. But it's very, very positive that governments are really legislating in, in the space. And I think it's important as well, because I think we have to take data privacy and security with the utmost respect in terms of you know how consumers are are going to deal with all this. And at the end of the day, they are the ones to benefit from this, right? They're the ones that they have to have to benefit from all this. But yeah, all the developments are positive. And again, as I said, they are really listening to market feedback. That's great. Yeah, that's really great. And how how has that shaped your philosophy on how Fantier engages with regulators? Oh, for us it's a no brainer. <laughs> Just from from day one, from day one. And I think in general, you know, being in FinTech for quite some time and working with founders and, you know, I think there is no move, you know, in the US, uh, you can you can say move fast and break things. Well, that doesn't work well in financial services, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in segments where, you know, 
there is a lot of sensitivity in terms of what you're doing and the data they are handling, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's important to embrace this. Uh, and this is part of our journey in Financia, um, really working with regulators, working with banks and data partners and so on to push this agenda forward. And, and this is what we're here. I mean, this is our role, not only building products, but really raising awareness, providing feedback, and also keep learning. And, and, you know, improving ourselves, you know, improving the company and how we're building our products and, you know, how we're doing things. But it's a must. I mean, embracing regulation, it doesn't need to be contradictory to or confrontational towards innovation. I think these two things can coexist. And actually, if you put that together, actually, innovation and regulation, they can function well. And I'm glad that regulators and in general, data partners are also aligned on that. But yeah, again, as a founder in fintech, uh, it's something you have to embrace. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's great advice for a lot of other fintech founders out there. Uh, I think as a student of public policy myself, I'm uh, <laughs> definitely in in agreement. David, one thing you mentioned uh, a few times is actually one of the fundamental, I think, friction or sticking points of open finance, which is the data privacy and the consent management piece. So in your view, you know, when we talk about this consumer data that you're getting from telcos or banks or whoever else, Mm -hmm. um, who owns that data and how should consent to use of that data be managed? Oh, Especially important because I think in some of the regulation, this is actually a little bit of a gray area. Yes, this is a very important topic. And to be honest, there is a gray area. Uh, I mean, some people might perhaps understand that, and I I don't disagree necessarily with that sort of understanding of it, but it's pretty clear that data belongs to the companies. That's legislated. That's, you know, really part of the PDPC and the different sort of data agencies or, or, or government agencies across the, the region. And this is uh, a discussion that I'm having with, with many stakeholders. I think what is important to, to, to think and to reflect upon is, well, we are not discussing here today about individuals owning the data. I mean, that's the ideal scenario here. That's perhaps the goal, you know, long-term. But I think what is important today is to, through proper consent management frameworks, to grant individuals the right and the privilege, not the privilege, but the right to manage their data. The data might still belong to private sector, to organizations, to a bank, to a telco, et cetera, et cetera. There are multiple terms and conditions and things that we revise when we work with each partner. But I think individuals, they have to have a say and they have to actually control access to the data. And this is the agenda that we're pushing forward. Not only, you know, by educating the market and bringing this discussion to multiple forums, but actually building the blocks that are giving back certain control to access and leverage their own data. So this is the discussion that we're having these days. These are the things that we are reviewing. Over the time, with all these initiatives going on across the, the, the region in terms of open finance, open banking, open data, and so on, we do expect that in the long run, consumers will have their own, you know, will have basically ownership over the, the data that they are actually producing online. But until then, reviewing how they can control access to it, I think is crucial. And this is where we where we are today. Got it. Got it. Diego. That's really helpful. I think there, for a lot of people, that nuance between uh, you know, who owns the data and um, who manages the data is is a missing link. And so I think I appreciate your breaking that down for us here. I do have another another question, right? Because obviously Financier is doing this, uh, you know, with with the stakeholders that you're working with, but there is some other competition in in the market or people that are trying to do something similar. You know, there's uh, of course Financier, IO Connect, Brick, and our podcast sponsor Broncos. Mm-hmm. Um, is there you know, and, and there are probably a few more that, that I've left off. But for in your view, is is there space in open finance in the market for all of these players? Or is it really like a winner-take-all market? I think that there is space for for all of us to actually even partner and work together at some point. I, I, I think that we're going to continue push the, continue pushing this agenda forward. And we're going to specialize in different products and different niche in different regions. So I think there is a lot of room for collaboration down the line. And I do expect that to happen. And I do hope that that happens. 
maybe we're all coming from different angles with different approaches. So my focus only in a particular data sector. So my focus in a particular geography. So my focus in a particular product. Uh, but I think uh, over the time we're going to collaborate here, and I'm really looking forward to that. I, I do think that what is important today is that all of us are pushing this forward, building the market, raising awareness, and you know contributing to, I would say, a better way for consumers just to to access financial services, and and that leads to better outcomes. To, to better lives. Um, and I do appreciate the effort of everyone here across the board really pushing this forward. Again, we all come from different angles. But yeah, I'm really looking forward for any future collaboration here. Excellent. Excellent. I guess the rising tides, the fell ships. You know, I think one other piece of this is obviously there are the homegrown open finance players from Southeast Asia. But I've actually heard all of the fintechs, all of the open finance companies I just mentioned, including financiers, <laughs> referred to as like the plaid of Southeast Asia. And I guess my question is, what what happens if a company like Plaid, um, which has been a leader, obviously in the U.S. or you know someone coming from Europe or another perhaps more developed market, comes into Southeast Asia to try to do the same thing? Do they actually have any advantage, or do you think that the homegrown startups are actually going to win if a player like Plaid enters? I think in any way, if they come, it's positive. But also we have connections here then. We know all the players, even the, the the global ones, the ones in the US and Europe, we are pretty familiar with them, even with the founders. <laughs> so I think the overall understanding of Southeast Asia and perhaps emerging markets or places where they are not present today is that uh, they are heavily regulated and, and these players might lack really the local context and the nuances to, to really expand. And really takes a lot of effort. We do see some potential potential partnerships here on the, the road with them. And there are several discussions on that front. But I think it's just too much for, for them just to come and, and deploy their resources over here. And if at some point that happens, that's happened, that that's actually beneficial for, for everyone here. But I think the most probably probable route here is just uh, establishing partnerships uh, because we've been in some discussions already. So I can tell you that. That's perhaps the approach that they're taking because they have they have this sort of they're seeking this global expansion but in this particular segment in this particular industry uh, markets are heavily regulated and i think having the local context and the hyper local context that that prevails when it comes to who understands the market and who can build the the most relatable products Diego. Um, I think we're almost out of time. Um, so I do have a big question for you, though, which is, you know, again, zooming out to open finance, we're seeing a lot of uh, opportunities in the market. We're seeing a lot of enablers, uh, as I would call them, you know, the, the proliferation of e-wallets, um, the new digital banking licenses in Singapore, Malaysia, etc. What, you know, what is the impact of those? Are there other enablers that are really helping to push open finance forward? And then I think conversely, are there any blockers? What are the biggest blockers for open finance to be successful and continue to grow? Things like tech debt at banks, um, you know, financial literacy. These are things that could could inhibit um, or slow down the progress of, of open finance. So in your view, are there any other enablers or blockers that people working in this ecosystem need to be aware of? Mm, and this is actually a great point. I think, I think overall the proliferation of digital banks and new financial experiences overall this is, this is positive. Uh, and even models such as why not pay later and you know these sort of different forms of credit, I think overall that's positive as long as it's not harming consumers, right? But yes, they enables they amplify suddenly the reach of open finance because open finance at the end of the day can really you know help. Any, any vertical, whether it's payments, remittances, lending, etc. But I think getting to your point of the blockers, I think the most in, important item here to, to, to talk about is not financial literacy, but really raising awareness about the, the real benefits and the incentives and, and, and how consumers and businesses can benefit from these interactions. I think um, regulation is, is happening as we speak in, in the right direction. But I think just, you know, educating the market and really helping people to understand the implications of this and really why it's important, how does it work, and really being transparent about, you know, how things are done. Uh, I think that goes a long way, but at the same time, it has to be done in, in, in the 
sort of proper language with the proper formats that will also allow consumers to to not only be supportive but also to to stick to it and to understand it and to also become evangelists of, of this in a way. Um, we have some interesting positive developments in some sectors in some some for some products. And I think you know it's part of the the challenge here. And coming back to the point of you know some companies operating the space, some peers. Uh, I think um, we're all in the same journey together. I think we're all helping out each other in a way to raise awareness. But again, that's the only challenge that I that I, I can see today. Got it. Great, Diego. Okay, my very last question, which is, you know, you've been you've been a pioneer your entire career. You've been a pioneer in computer science, um, studying it from age eight. You've been a pioneer in fintech. And you just told me that you were a pioneer in the digital nomad lifestyle, which we're all trying to figure out how to do. <laughs> um, so, what's the next? What's the next frontier in fintech in Southeast Asia? What's What's the thing that you're most excited about that's on the horizon? Well, I'm excited about many things. Although maybe you are looking for something crypto related, perhaps I'm not the one that you <laughs> might be talking to. Um, I'm excited in general about about things uh, about whatever has to do with technology and financial services. But I'm also, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a skeptical, but I really like to analyze and, and, and look to things from certain perspective when it comes to, you know, certain trends and really look at the implications of the adoption of certain technologies. But yeah, I'm certainly excited about the transition from Web 2 to Web 3, but but always putting consumers you know, at the front of it, really understanding what are the actual benefits and not just, you know, framing things like, oh, you know, Web3, this and that, and, you know, without delivering any value to the ecosystem, not making the world a better place. That's, you know, something that gets me to think sometimes. But um, yeah, I think anything is related to the transition from Web2 to Web3 with real life benefits to, to consumers and to, to economies in general, that really gets me excited. I do have some other things that that's for episode two and Rita, <laughs> um, but I, I'm not a pioneer in any regard of anything. I, I just, you know, go with the flow, but uh, I don't know. It just things happen and along the way, I guess, but always having this passion for, you know, building things and making a positive impact on the world. Absolutely. Thank you, Diego. I can't wait for episode two. Um, that'll be another fun conversation. But this has been so great today. Um, we are out of time, but thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. This has been a really insightful session. It's it's great to have you here. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you, Anrita. I really enjoyed the time with you. Great. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.